Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, adapters. Welcome back to another episode of America Adapts. This is such a fantastic episode. How could it not be? It's about climate change and surfing. The guest this episode is Chad Nelson, CEO of the world-famous coastal conservation group, Surfrider Foundation. We dig into topics such as institutionalizing adaptation, sea level rise in surfing, grassroots advocacy, and much more. Before we get started, just some very important housekeeping. Thanks to Beth Gibbons, Managing Director at the American Society of Adaptation Professionals, for the nice plug of, of America Daps in their newsletter. You've heard me talk about ASAP before. It's the only professional society focusing on adaptation, and it's huge and growing field. Look them up and join their growing network of adaptation professionals. I have links in the show notes. Hey, adapters, it is the end of the year, and all of you are now desperately looking for organizations to donate to. December is traditionally the biggest month for giving, so please consider supporting America Daps. We have all come a long way, and we've done it through the support of listeners. Please consider giving a tax-deductible donation. And tell your friends if they're looking for a good group to give to, they can give to America Daps. You can find links to the Flip Cause donate page in the show notes. And to those who are already donating and recurring donators, thank you. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring a specific podcast or having me speak at public or corporate events, please contact me via the website americadapts.org. Okay, upcoming guests. I have an economist from the real estate company Zillow coming on to discuss sea level rise work they are doing. I'm loving that Zillow is starting to think about climate change. Then I have Professor Elizabeth Rush from Brown University coming on to share her thoughts on nonfiction writing and climate change. And I'm currently hard at work on a sponsored episode by the World Wildlife Fund focusing on snow leopards and adaptation. I'm literally talking to people from all over the world for this one. And my second annual holiday special should be out soon where I have some surprise guests come on to discuss what happened this year in climate change news and also to talk about the future of this podcast. Okay, I know how this works. You want me to start this thing. Okay, let's catch an adaptation wave with Chad. Sorry, I couldn't resist. Here's Chad. Welcome back, adapters. We have a very exciting episode for you on today's podcast. I have Dr. Chad Nelson, Chief Executive Officer of the Surfrider Foundation. Welcome to the podcast, Chad. Hey, thanks for having me, Doug. Well, it's great to have you on, and we were actually trying to record this in person last week. I was out there in Los Angeles for this Landscape Architects Conference, and then we had set up a time and everything, but I poorly planned, not realizing how sprawling Southern California is, and I thought, oh, i just pop in and see you, and it doesn't work that way, does it? No, well, it's it's 50 miles, but it can take three hours, depending on the time of day that you want, you want to make that commute, so... Apparently, even if you're five miles away from anything in L.A., you have to build in 45 minutes, they tell you. So, yeah, it's true. Well, on that note, I'm here. We're doing it on Skype. And so I, I regret, but I will make a point. I think I'm going to try to get out to California next year and hopefully I, I'd be able to pop in and maybe we do some sort of follow up. But I, I definitely want to get out to where you're at. So that's my goal. Yeah, that would be fantastic. All right. So you are at Surfrider Foundation. You are the CEO. Let's just give my listeners some basic background first. What is Surfrider Foundation? Sure. We're a grassroots coastal and ocean conservation organization. The Surfrider Foundation was founded in uh, 1984 
in Malibu at Surfrider Beach. And it was really uh, a group of visionary surfers who sort of were tired of um, seeing the ocean and their surf spots impacted and decided to take take action at the time. And I guess still today, surfers sort of suffer a, a bad reputation as being sort of dropouts and losers and people aren't contributing to society. And these guys wanted to change that. And it was somewhat selfish at the start because they were trying to protect surf spots. And since then, it's grown. We have uh, 80 all-volunteer grassroots chapters around the nation. We're in almost every coastal state except for a couple in the Gulf, Atlanta, I mean, Al- Atlanta, Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi. You know, and we work on a, a variety of coastal issues that are local, state, and federal in nature. Water quality, beach access, coastal development, offshore, you know, ocean protection in different ways, and plastic pollution. Okay, so do you actually surf? I do. I uh, I surf. I try to surf two or three days a week. <laughs> nice. So yeah, and uh, avid surfers. I, I did a bunch of research, which we can talk about or not, but on um, sort of surfs, surfers and economics and surf behavior and. The average surfer that I interviewed, which were thousands of them, were about 100 days a year. So they're surfing like people run. Well, as an aside, who put us in touch in the first place is Randy Olson, the science communicator who's been on my podcast multiple times. And so when I was visiting him out in L.A., he was checking the surf report on his you know phone like every hour. And I guess that's a common <laughs> theme with you guys. You're planning things out two, three weeks, deciding when the swell is coming in and all that. So. Yeah, well, you know, and it's actually relevant to Surfrider's mission because surfers like a lot of, I, I guess, sort of naturalist recreational activities like fly fishing or other things are really students of the ocean and students of weather. You know, they're looking at these forecasts. They're watching storms brewing off of New Zealand that are sending swell across the Pacific, in our case. They're looking at the direction of those waves, the wave height, the wave period. Then they're comparing that to, you know, the orientation of the coast and tides and then looking at weather and wind. And, and so it's actually they're, they're really amateur meteorologists and oceanographers, which makes them great sort of coastal advocates because they already understand the, the sort of the science of the coast in many ways on top of, you know, decades of observation. So. Randy was correcting me on all my terminology related to surfing, and it was all wrong, so I find that quite humorous. <laughs> um, but this is not a surfing podcast, but it's about Surfrider Foundation. And let me just – there's a couple things I want to accomplish with this conversation, and one is that you guys are really – are a unique organization and that partly is tied to your history is related to surfing. But then this podcast is about climate change. And I want to talk a bit about your emphasis on climate change and how you guys are evolving to address that issue. But I'm just going to just dig in a bit more about the organization itself and kind of put you on the spot and see how you kind of answer this question. But sure. What do you think are the three greatest achievements of Surfrider? And I just, I think that gives listeners a good sense of the things that, I mean, you mentioned earlier, but what do you think are the three greatest achievements? Great question. You know, we, we won in, uh, in the early nineties, Surfrider Foundation won the second largest clean water Act lawsuit in the in the nation um, against a pulp mill in Humboldt in Northern California um, that was you know polluting the ocean and a surf spot, and uh, it was a huge huge victory for the organization and it really put us on the map. So it it was a piv- it was a big victory in its own right and an extraordinary victory for a small organization. It really kind of was a turning point in terms of our growth and our 
our success. So that's certainly one of them. We also have recently stopped a massive six-lane private toll road in Trestle at Trestles in San Onofre State Beach, sort of right in our backyard here in San Clemente, that was going to sort of decimate the last healthy watershed in Southern California, destroy a state park, and impact arguably the best, some of the best surfing areas in the United States um, at Trestles. It's the only surf spot in the U.S. that regularly hosts one of the world championship tours, which is sort of the elite surf contests of the globe. So that's another one. You know, and I think uh, the third I would, would say is our victory to ban single-use plastic bags in California last November. It was one of the positive outcomes of the November election, and it was a ballot initiative in the state of California that banned single-use plastic bags statewide. That's significant for a couple of reasons. One, Californians use about 15 billion or used about 15 billion of those plastic bags every year. So those are taken out of circulation and they are a very commonly found item of trash on the beach and it's the first state to do so. So we're hoping it's going to set a precedent to help reduce plastic pollution nationwide. Well, congratulations. Those are pretty, I guess, monumental for you guys. And it's quite an accomplishment for, I guess, an organization that actually isn't that old. This next question, I, I'm very curious how you might answer this. Is Surfrider an environmental group built around a sport or is it a sports group that has a strong environmental agenda? <laughs> it's, that is, uh, every year we do a strategic plan, that question comes up. It's very clearly an environmental group that is trying to use ocean recreation as a vehicle to get people involved. So at the end of the day, that the you know our mission is the protection and enjoyment of the world's ocean waves and beaches, and you know we're really really focused on conservation efforts, and we're trying to get surfers and other people who recreate on the ocean and the coast engaged. Another part of that is you know you don't need to be a surfer to be involved in surf rider. I, we hear that all the time, and you know it's a strong part of our culture and it's part of our history, but we have an amazing network of activists who aren't surfers who are still participating in coastal conservation. So do you actively try to recruit? I'm assuming you have like a membership model for the organization. Like if you want to donate your, I guess you're almost a de facto member. Do you like try to recruit people in, you know, central United States? Do you have Kansas members? Is that even something that you try to do? You know, we have members in every state in the U S we, we don't, you know, the most of our activity takes place on the coasts where, you know, we're kind of a local grassroots organization. Our membership is, you know, mostly coastal. But, you know, the beach is the number one visitor destination in the United States. And so there's a lot of people who spend their week long vacation at some beach in the U.S. And we hope that they uh, can support the local community and the place they like to visit. So we're not, at, you know, we're not actually out there targeting, you know, the demographics of Kansas necessarily, but we know we have members out there and maybe they go to the beach in San Diego every year. So they, you know, they want to support us so they can make sure the water's clean when they go on their holiday. So you've talked a little bit about it, but could maybe give some more examples. How does Surfrider, I guess, vary on issues region by region? So California has very specific issues and you have chapters all over the place. So you can, you, can you give a few examples? I know you have like, I think 80 chapters or something. I'm not looking for 80 yeah, examples. 80 chapters, every, every coastal state. So I can give you a ton of examples. Um, and, you know, one of the things that's sort of unique about the Surfrider Foundation that I really like is on one hand, we're, we're a local, we have 80 local organizations. So, you know, I can give you an example. Um, 
driving on the beach is an you know, sort of sacrilege in Southern California. The only people who can drive on the beach here are, are the lifeguards. And so, you know, issues around driving on the beach, if you looked at those in California, would be very different than Texas, where driving on the beach is seen as a fundamental right. There's a lot of places on the coast you can't get to in Texas unless you drive on the beach. And driving on the beach in Texas is actually like a fundamental part of their coastal and beach access sort of cultural history and laws. So, we, we let the local chapters sort of determine their positions on issue that are in context with their, you know, local laws, their history, their heritage, their culture, and sort of what's relevant and makes sense for them. And that varies, you know, what you can do on a rural or, or a sort of a, you know, an empty rural beach in Oregon is different than you can do on Miami Beach. And we, we really, you know, let the locals drive the, the positions. We do have sort of commonality across some issues, shoreline armoring, which is something we'll talk about, where it tends to be the same. At the same time, we can organize those 80 chapters nationally and, and kind of act like a national organization if we can come together around an, an issue and work there. So we kind of, I think we have the best of both worlds. We, we can kind of operate on a national scale and at the same time, zoom down to the local level and really operate at the local level. So I grew up in Florida on the beach in Sarasota, but obviously went to beaches all over the state. And you can't really drive on the beaches in most of Florida, but I went to Daytona Beach, and they allowed you, at least at the time, to drive. And it was just the worst experience of my life. You're laying there, and two feet from your feet is a big car just driving by. It was surreal. I think it was the first time I encountered driving on the beach, and I'm like, this is nuts, but... Yeah, like yeah. you said, it's a local issue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and there and there are there are places I know on the Outer Banks and um and the, where you you literally you know there's no roads. Mm -hmm. So if you want to get out to some of these, at least for the surfers, you want to get out to some of these surf spots. Unless you're willing to hike eight miles, you know, you, you actually have to drive on the beach to get there. And my guess is there's few enough people doing it that it doesn't have a huge impact. Although driving on the beach clearly does have some environmental impact. I lived in Australia for a few years, and you're right. Literally, the only way to get around some of those remote islands is like the, the beaches are the highways, so that's how they got around. So I want to pivot to Surfrider Foundation's focus on climate change and you mm -hmm. know, its role on your organization. And, and I, I think other groups could probably learn a lot, and, and I know you guys have started to really – focus on this issue. And you, you did an interview when you first got hired as CEO, because you, you've been a, a, with Surfrider for quite a while, but I think, how long have you been CEO? Yep. I've been CEO for three years, but I've been with Surfrider for almost 20. Okay. This interview, you know what I'm talking about. It's on the website. And so I want to yep. read a, a, something here. And so you identified three priorities at, when the in this interview as coming on as CEO. And the first one here is the address, the impact of climate change on our oceans and coasts, such as ocean acidification and sea level rise. I believe this will be the biggest challenge we face in the next 30 years. And so that that's one of the three points. And I'm just curious, how are you addressing those issues right now? Sure. You know, if I... I think if I look, tell you how we used to address them and how we're trying to address them, it'll, it'll tell that story. Surfrider Foundation, for one thing, is, is one of the very few national groups that actually focus on, on coastal issues, um, coastal development, shoreline armoring, sea level rise now, um, beach you know, nourishment, quote unquote. And we've been working on those issues since the, the very beginning of our organization. For, so for 33 years, we've been fighting shoreline armoring projects, and um, you know, which is a response to coastal erosion, regardless of the origin of that coastal erosion. And you know, when 
infrastructure that humans build is threatened, one of the responses is to armor the coast with riprap or seawalls or revetments, um, which we know impact the beaches. And so we've been fighting those projects, project by project by project, dozens and dozens of them around the country for 30 years. And so it was a very reactive, very localized approach, you know, and if you win one of those campaigns, which we often did, you stop the shoreline armoring project for some time. If you lose one, you know, that part of the coast is um, impacted for the rest of time. They pretty rarely get taken out. So that was our sort of place, local, spot by spot, project by project, reactive approach for 30 years. And it's not a winning strategy, (laughs) you know, because if you win, you delay it. And if you lose, it's forever. Um, And so one of the things we've tried to do over the last three years is pivot and try to actually get in front of these problems and use land use planning and coastal adaptation planning to try to, you know, anticipate these future problems and, and focus on plans to adapt to the coast. And, you know, that might mean that in some places it's the coast is sacrificial and we armor the coast. In some places that might mean we, for, you know, we want to protect recreational beaches and we use, you know, very expensive and ecologically damaging sort of beach refill projects. And in some places we're going to have to retreat, um, but do that in a comprehensive, proactive, planned way instead of just waiting for problems and re- reacting to them. So that's been the big shift for us over the last three years. We're still fighting shoreline armoring projects, but we're also trying to be um, local advocates for coastal adaptation and planning and, and either get involved in those if they're happening or try to promote that kind of thinking in places where it's not happening yet. Another one of your priorities is that you want to, I guess, go away from being reactive to proactive and I, I think how you address issues. And what you just described, I think a lot of coastal issues, it is reactive. And I think the issue of climate change is forcing a lot of organizations to be proactive. And so and in a way, is it, it's a priority that I think links very well to your emphasis on climate change. And so what I kind of want to dig into, and I think other groups could benefit from your experiences, you've dealt with these issues on sort of case-by-case basis, but how are you institutionalizing climate change or adaptation, or are you? I mean, are you getting the board involved? Have you done a strategic plan? Because a lot of groups out there, I mean, there's just, you know what I'm talking about, They'll all of a sudden they'll have one staff member that'll start going to the climate change meetings, and it's sort of a haphazard approach, and have you been able to kind of step back and really institutionalize it? I would say we're, we are on the path to institutionalizing it. <clears throat> we haven't really arrived at that. And so, you know, we've been developing a plan. We have a, you know, we, we work on like five initiatives. We have a coastal conservation initiative and <clears throat> inside that we're talking, which is where we deal with these coastal erosion, armoring, nourishment type issues, um, inappropriate coastal development. So we've been developing a plan inside that initiative to address sort of the, the coastal adaptation piece. We're also doing some work on ocean acidification on that side of it, too. You know, and so for us, because we have this, you know, grassroots network, it's at the end of the day, it's really about training our chapter network on sort of ways to get involved. They know how to fight a seawall or a shoreline armoring project because we've been doing that for for years. And, you know, we're trying to educate them on the alternative which is to try to get involved in planning and that's that's hard to do with an activist organization that the metaphor that i use all the time is you know if you live in your hometown and and somebody's going to come in and plan a 
12 story multi sort of tower condo complex in the center of your quaint little town and they have a planning commission meeting, you know, the community will come out with their pitchforks and their posters and fight that. If you have the 2020, 2050 visioning meeting at your city hall, the six sort of planning wonks in your town will show up. <laughs> so right, it's, right. it's much easier to get people to respond to the bulldozers on the beach and the rocks being poured down on the beach and fight the, the armoring project than it is to get them to get involved in the 2040 coastal adaptation planning. But we're trying to, you know, educate people on the efficacy of that, give them the tools and resources to be effective stewards, you know, and the science and, and, and the good news is, is our sort of activist base and our members are already pretty educated on these issues. So they're, you know, they already understand sea level rise. They already understand the impacts of coastal development and coastal armoring. So it's getting them to pivot into thinking about planning. So we're, we're, to answer your question, we're sort of on that path. I don't think we're there yet. This idea of institutionalizing adaptation planning, it's a tricky one. And I've spent a time, spent a lot of time looking at that. And, but I guess one way of doing that is who you recruit, recruit to your board. And I, I didn't look at your, your board members, but I actually just had a conversation with one of your board members who, who's probably going to come on the podcast. I don't know if she ever chatted with you, Margaret Peloso. Maggie Peloso. Yeah. Maggie. Okay. That was the yes. You know her as Margaret. <laughs> that's how that's her email says. But I, I had yes. coffee with her last week. She had reached out and she just wrote a book on sea level rise. And so we're probably going to get her on. And, but just by coincidence, she's, I brought that I was going to talk to you up and she's like, wait, I'm on the board for that. So did you ever chat with her? I did. I had a brief chat with her about that. Um, she said she had met you. I mean, you know, she's extraordinary in many regards both in terms of, you know, she sort of simultaneously got her PhD at Duke and her law degree at Stanford, <laughs> which kind of kind of says enough and, and focused on these these really important coastal issues. And, um, you know, I she has a really important perspective because I think, you know, I, I was as I said to her, you know, the, these planning processes, as I see them, you know, they sort of usually start with some sort of like hazard or risk assessment, which is a science project to say, how is our coast going to be impacted by different scenarios of climate change? You know, and then the next phase is some sort of planning phase where people look at their alternatives over time and what can be done to sort of minimize impacts and what the trade-offs are, you know, and then at some point the rubber hits the road and we actually have to tell somebody that they have to change or move or that they can't do something they want to do, like build their dream house on their coastal property right up against the edge. They can have that whitewater view from their kitchen. And that's when usually things get ugly and, you know, it in, inevitably leads to lawsuits and issues around takings. And, you know, that's really her, in many ways, her expertise. And so I feel like her perspective is is great at all levels, but particularly in this really sort of when we get pragmatic about like, what do these things mean and what are the impacts? Yeah. She's sort of one of these people that I just, I wonder how they even re retrieve information from their brain. Just <laughs> incredibly <laughs> like she's got the PhD and a law degree from different coasts. And I'm just like, how, I mean, I can barely quote Simpsons very well. And she's, <laughs> she's out there doing that. But I, I guess my point is to, Back to the point of institutionalizing, did you recruit her as a board member or does she kind of go before you when you came on as the CEO? Well, we actually had um, – she was on the board before I got hired, so arguably she recruited me. But um, okay, right, she, right. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, it was here, but she actually was recruited to our board from a, another Margaret, uh, or Meg, I should say, uh, Meg Caldwell. It is another Margaret, um, who, uh, now is at the Packard Foundation, but ran Stanford's sort of legal environmental clinic and is also a incredibly knowledgeable, um, sort of academic mind when it comes to these coastal issues, um, and law. So we've, we've benefited from having a number of people. So she recruited her, her student at the time and now, you know, Maggie to our board. So we've actually had a pretty long history of having some really sort of nationally recognized coastal policy and legal experts on our board over my tenure here, um, which does make a difference. So we, we maybe haven't institutionalized sort of coastal adaptation specifically, but we've always wanted to have sort of coastal um, conservation, science, law, and policy representation on our board, you know, which which can apply to a number of topics, including coastal adaptation. Oh, man, you've got some ringers on that board, you know, a foundation yeah. person, you know, Margaret's just this expert on sea level rise. Well done. Um, yeah. Well, and, and again, the point is that she can, when you have those internal conversations, I imagine she can weigh in in a very educated way on because you look at the coast that you're dealing with, and this is I kind of want to pivot to like there, there's probably been a lot of focus on California, even though you have chapters everywhere. But sea level rise issues in Florida are going to be much different in a lot of ways to California. And so how do you kind of set policy as an organization? Because, you know, in Florida, I'm, I've had a lot of guests on from Florida. That's where I'm from. I used to work there. Mm-hmm. And you're you're talking about losing these areas. And I, I know California will lose some areas, but the difference between Florida, it's pretty dramatic. Miami, in all likelihood, could be gone with three, four feet of sea level rise. And so yep. how do your chapters there, They, I mean, if you guys come together even on the issue of sea level rise, there must be kind of like, well, okay, it's just a completely different beast. How do you kind of bring in have that common ground? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think, you know, uh, on a principal standpoint, our organization and our 80 chapters and our staff, you know, we agree that, you know, <laughs> hey, climate change is real, being caused by human, <laughs> causing sea level rise. We know that, you know, those ranges are whatever they are, the minimum to the maximum, whether it's, you know, a foot and a half or six feet of sea level rise is going to have a dramatic impact on our coast because we're already seeing those changes day in and day out right now. Um, we know shoreline armoring is harms beaches. We know beach fill or beach nourishment um, which is a euphemism for it, um, is expensive, marginally, marginally effective, and forever, um, you know, and that retreat is really the only long-term sustainable solution. So we kind of have this set of principles that we all sort of agree upon, and then we sort of apply those to the local context. So I was just at um, down in Miami working with our chapter down there, and I was on a panel at a conference about climate change with the mayor of Miami Beach and meeting with our chapter, you know, and not only is the geography different and it's, you know, flat and porous, the political climate's also vastly different. So you can't go into Tallahassee and talk about climate change and coastal adaptation. You have to talk about flooding and extreme weather. Um, so I think that's another advantage of, of sort of this, this model we have is you can, you know, if you sent some of our California policy people into Tallahassee, I don't think they'd be very effective because they'd be using the wrong language. So, you know, the, the challenges are massive. So we, we agree at principles on a federal level, on a national level, and then we apply those principles within the local context. 
Well, Florida's bonkers. I mean, I think there's a term <laughs> for, and I grew up there, I can call it bonkers, but yeah. they, they call sea level rise flooding. In, I think even in some of the official policy statements, like nuisance flooding or something like ridiculous. But what's yep. crazy is, I mean, you went down there to, to, to Miami and the local governments are just raging on this issue and it's really encouraging and then the universities and so when state people go to meetings it must be embarrassing because everyone else is like moving at the speed of light and so it really is bonkers how they're they're approaching it It, absolutely i mean i I, you know i think that ideology gives way to pragmatism at the local level so you know if you're the mayor of miami beach and you're watching storm drains flood backwards into neighborhoods instead of drain water to the ocean and you're watching you know high tides to regular high tides flood streets you know these are the pothole issues of of sort of sea level rise and climate change so they have to address them so you know that's where the pragmatism comes in and you know whether or not you agree with the approaches they're taking, they have to be taking them. Whereas if you're sitting in Tallahassee, you're like, oh, this is a theoretical construct and I don't want to believe it because it gets in the way of my fund donor funding base or whatever it is. But um, so I think that's really interesting is you look when you look at the local level, the, the reality hits you in the face. I guess digging deeper in the sea level rise issue for you. I mean, your organization it fascinates me in a lot of ways because Sea level rise is this charismatic megafauna of climate impacts. And again, you have to approach it different ways on different coastlines. Even, you know, in the Great Lakes, there's different ways of looking at it. And mm-hmm. what a lot of groups struggle with, and I, and I hope Surfrider, if you're not doing it already, it's something you're headed towards. How do you define success when it comes to sea level rise because there's so much negative around it's like well we're gonna have to retreat we're gonna have to abandon these areas and that's in in reality in florida that's going to be the case but on a on a yearly basis on a on defining metrics as an organization what do you consider victories in in the realm of sea level rise yeah that's a great question i mean i think for us, we'd probably put it in two or three boxes. One would be, you know, successful defense against these shoreline armoring projects. So, you know, the reactive response is wait for the problem and throw rocks in the way and sacrifice the beach for some temporary benefit to the coastal property, which, you know, we see all over Florida included. So it's stopping those kind of projects from happening because if you stop them, then that you, you get a minute to say, okay, well, what are we going to do? And you, you can shift that conversation. So that's one metric is just, you know, we're, we're tracking how many of these seawall campaigns we have out there and, and, um, or armoring campaigns and, and, and whether or not we're winning them or losing them on the proactive side, it's, you know, how many good coastal adaptation plans can we positively impact and get past? So in California, for example, they have these local coastal plans that are regulated by the California Coastal Commission, which was put out a sea level guidance document so that these local plans have to incorporate sea level rise. And we're trying to get in there and be advocates for that adaptation. Um, and so, you know, if we can see good local coastal plans passed, that's going to be another indicator of success for us. On the flip side, if we watch Laws Weekend post storm, if we watch armoring projects go in, you know, we, we've lost a couple of those. There's a horrific project. These are all small in scale, but, you know, they add up is, is the problem. Um, in the downtown Montauk area out in, out in sort of eastern Long Island, they put in a giant mile long geotextile seawall 
try to stop erosion. You know, so we're, we're, we see those losses, and when we lose, we try to turn turn that around and turn it into a learning experience because when people armor the coast, you know, it doesn't take very long before you see the negative impacts. Well, I, I'm sure you get involved with educational efforts with the public, and I'm just curious, maybe there's yes. something like this already, and this is kind of a surfing question, but have you have you seen it? Have you done or have you seen anything where you sort of, okay, three to six feet of sea level rise, what does this mean for famous surf breaks? And is there something out there like that? Well, you, can you kind of communicate, well, you're going to lose your favorite surfing spots? Yes. Um, yeah, no, there is actually. There's actually a, a, a guy named Dan Reineman who did his um, PhD dissertation on that at Stanford. Wow. wow. <laughs> Amazingly enough. He looked at the impacts of sea level rise in different scenarios along the coast of California and how it was going to impact surfing spots. And yeah, so, you know, when you, you know, at the end of the day, the, the, the wave breaking is controlled by the depth of the water. So as waves come in, when, when they reach a depth that's approximately half their height, they break. Depending on what the shoreline looks like, if it's a reef, a rocky reef, or a coral reef, um, a lot of surf spots are very tide dependent, which is why surfers are always studying the tides. And so the quality of the wave or whether they're surfable or not, or even break can be impacted by the tide. You know, and here in California, we have like at the maximum about a eight foot tide range. And it's normally, you know, a three to four to five foot tide range kind of. And um, and that has a huge impact on the quality of surf spots. There are some surf spots that I surf that are unsurfable at low tide because the rocks are exposed or don't break at high tide because the water's too deep to trip the wave. So surfing is incredibly sensitive to tide. So if you increase, we call it permanent high tide. You know, if you increase the sea level by three feet to six feet, you're going to be, be in this sort of permanent high tide. And there will be surf spots that will disappear entirely, you know, and, and this guy, um, Dan Reinemann's estimate was that half the surf spots in California will be impacted in some way by that. Now, could some new ones emerge? But it probably won't be an even trade-off, particularly because if we armor the coast in response to all the sea level rise and we lose our beaches, you know, we're, we're going to, it's going to be our response to that sea level rise is going to have a huge impact on surfing and our ability to go to the beach as well surfers uh, they value those breaks and if that happens there's that cultural history that'll be lost too that's probably not focused on as much but you know there's a lot of like history tied in with those breaks so yeah a lot of stories yeah it's a a huge economic driver i mean you know the the surf industry is a multi-billion dollar industry you know beach tourism in california is a 15 billion dollar industry and there's some decent percentage of that is it has to do with surfing. And like you're saying, it's a, sort of an iconic, you know, sort of part of the identity of a lot of these 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 coastal communities in California and Florida and elsewhere. So it will have a I think it will have a it could, you know, surfing sounds trivial in the grand scheme of of climate issues for sure. But it, it probably will have a real economic impact if that if that happens. We also think, you know, like there was a, you know, this group called Protect Our Winners put out some amazing report about the impact of climate change on skiing in the United States of America. And I think it was a way of making these these climate change issues real to people. Obama actually, in his last State of the Union address, made this reference to sort of losing skiing in America. And it just kind of showed that finding these these things like surfing or skiing that people can wrap their head around and talk about the impact is maybe a way of raising, bringing awareness to, to, 
to people in a way that's different from a lot of the technical, confusing discussions about about climate change. Even sea level rise, as simple as it is, is something that's hard for sort of I think the average person who's not sort of well, you know, living on the coast to understand. Well, have you ever seen any visual educational tools that? My last guest, we talked about how sea level rise is going to cause sort of the migration of people. He he did a model and had like 14 million people. Mm -hmm. And we were sort of joking that everyone very casually says, oh, well, I'll have beachfront property and they're in Orlando or something. (laughs) And like, you know, most of the sea level rise maps that we see, they're these bathtub models be like, oh, look, Miami's flooded up until this point. But it's just very like there's the line. And have you ever seen? Yeah, it's like a lake, right? Yeah. But have you ever seen any visuals that it's not going to be beachfront? It's going to be marshy, muddy goo, and there's going to be all sorts of former gas station toxic fun sites that are going to be now underwater. And so, yeah, it's going to be a wasteland. Uh, but have you seen any like <laughs> visual tools out there that sort of explain? No, the be- beautiful beach is just not going to migrate really nicely with sea level rise. Have you ever seen? I haven't. I, I'm trying to think. No, you know, and it's funny because I've seen a lot of those visualizations that you're talking about, and I, you're right. It, the water's like placid. It is the bathtub. It's just a lake. Like, I've seen those visualizations of Manhattan underwater, you know, and it's just all the – it looks like Venice, right? Just the buildings with popping out of the water, and you're like, oh, we'll just have water taxis. It'll be fine. Right. But but it, but it won't. You're right. It'll be sort of apocalyptic, and um, and I haven't – I haven't seen that. Interesting. Quick aside, I actually just went and watched the Blade Runner 2049 last weekend. And, you know, the one of the things that I was extraordinary is it takes place in Los Angeles and there's a scene that takes place on the coast and there's like a 50 or 100 foot metal seawall lining, lining the coast of Los Angeles. And I had to give the the movie makers credit because they kind of, you know, without saying anything about it, kind of anticipated this, <laughs> this world where we're disconnected from the ocean by some giant wall. But that was I, the reason I bring it up is because that was sort of an apocalyptic view of the coast of the future, which isn't this placid flooding, but, but some horrifyingly giant wall separating us from the ocean. Right. Right. It's just the idea, even as it moves up slowly, it's just like, it's not going to be these quartz sand beaches that kind of naturally emerge or they're on the edge it's going to be just louisiana coast probably where it's just this muddy breaking apart and that i don't think that's given enough attention hey there you go surf rider there's a <laughs> there's a tool you could use yeah well you know it's interesting because one of our sort of early mentors and you know continues to be at surf riders you know orrin pilkey the infamous coastal geologist from north carolina at duke you know and he was one of the people who's credited with understanding sort of how coasts migrate with sea level rise. Cause if you look at the barrier islands over time on the East coast, you know, they kind of move up and down, up, up and down the coast with sea level rise. And, you know, he was credited with showing how they migrate, you know, and every time they overwash, you know, they're kind of pushing themselves back and they can move around and they're mobile. And, you know, obviously we're trying to make them stationary, which is part of the problem <laughs> they're built to move. Part of that is an indication that if we actually stayed out of the way and assuming sea level rise doesn't accelerate so quickly that those processes can't keep up, my guess is they would adjust. We could have wide sandy beaches with sea level rise. It's the fact that we, you know, that we try to stop that natural process from occurring. And, you know, you can see this all over the coastlines. There are areas where, 
you can see shoreline armoring and there's no beach and adjacent to it is natural coastline and it's you know the coast has moved in 50 feet but there's still a wide sandy beach there i i think it's really as a one of our activists in new york so eloquently said he's you know coastal erosion isn't the problem coastal erosion is actually beautiful it's what's created these landscapes these coastlines that we love it's our interference with those natural processes that causes all the problems. I thought that was really sort of insightful because we're like, ooh, coastal erosion, bad, you know, which is really not true unless we get in the way. Then it's a big problem. Well, I think there, there was an article in the R- Rolling Stone about Miami. I think it did a, the best job of sort of through text visualizing what this flooding might mean for the city and sort of the abandonment. And there weren't, there weren't really that the visuals, but just the description. And it's just like, yeah, that's how we kind of, we have to dig into that. We have to capture people's imaginations over what the implications this means, especially with all this built environment next to the coast. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, that's when you quoted that statement that I made in that, um, you know, that blog, that, that interview, you know, sea levels, you know, I know this is on average and it varies depending on all these factors uh, in different regions, but you know, it's, it's risen eight inches or so in the last hundred years in the, in the U S and uh, as surf riders, a group that's like on these beaches and these coastlines all around the country for the last 30 of those hundred years, you can see the challenges and problems it's created. I mean, there's miles and miles of the Florida shoreline that are armored and the beaches are suffering. And, and, uh, same is true in California and other places. And you think about three feet to six feet of sea level rise in the next 50 to 75 years. And the scale of that impact compared to what we're already seeing is really hard to wrap your head around. And I think we're woefully unprepared to deal with those consequences and you know, one of the big questions I have, and this is a classic Randy Olson shifting baselines thing, is, you know, if this is a slow-moving disaster, is it finally going to accelerate to the point where it's quickly enough moving that we actually start to feel it and need to respond instead of just waiting for hurricanes and other natural disasters? But I think the scale of that impact of that three feet of sea level rise is just going to be mind-blowing. And I, we're, I just, it's hard for me to believe we're anywhere near ready for that, you know, from a planning standpoint, from a sort of legal standpoint, from a financial standpoint. Well, it's interesting how different sectors approach sea level rise. And when I was at the Landscape Architect Conference, I think it's it's a field that's still getting their head around the issue. Some of the landscape architects are very sophisticated. They get it. Others as a field are still picking up and separating it out from sustainability. But what I was encouraged to see is I think a lot of people that are really doing adaptation work, they're very cautious. And so you say the three feet of sea level rise, which is a kind of a number we hear from the IPCC, but more people are getting comfortable saying four or five. And like one of the, pres- mm-hmm. one of the, pres- yeah, I'm being conservative. Yeah. One of the presentations I saw was sort of as they were, they were showing some, uh, the, the development, they, they put in 12 feet and it was just very interesting to see how this field, this landscape architecture field was, it was anything goes on sea level rise. And I think it's good. You know, you need to think really sort of outside the box, whereas a lot of people that are dealing with sea level rise on a day to day basis, they're naturally gravitating toward the most conservative number, which three feet, you know, I think in five years, we're going to look back, you know, quaintly on three feet. Well, I, I think so too. And it's interesting. I, two things I've noticed. One is that every time the IPCC comes out with a, uh, a prediction, they increase the prediction. So they were like, we're too, we were too conservative. We were too conservative. We were too conservative. So there's a trend for them to keep, 
keep upping their predictions. The other graph that I find really interesting is if you look at the some some of the early sea level rise predictions, you know, they have like the the sort of megaphone graph where there's this range where there's a low level and a high level and there's this range in between that increases over time. Um, and then you track what's actually happening with sea level and it's at the right on it's amazingly accurate, but it's on the maximum line trend, you know. So if that continues, it, it says suggests that the maximum estimates are more accurate than the conservative estimates. Well, I hope groups like yours keep pushing the, the deeper end of that just because, you know, we need to have this conversation. So, I mean, I, it, it's almost like a policy discussion you internally have to kind of get behind because it weighs in on, you know, if you go and talk to local governments, you can't be so different from what they're talking about, but at the same time need to be pushing them to think five feet might be the reasonable number now. Yep. Well, you know, and again, kind of circling back to Surfrider, that's really where our strength is, is we can educate these locals. They really do know the coastlines in their communities better than just about anybody else there because they're on them every day. You know, in many cases, they've been around for a while, so they've observed changes and they can go advocate at the local level as, you know, really experts on the, these topics and push you know, city councils and local region, local and regional governments to, to take action. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's often where the rubber meets the road with these decisions. And so that's that's what we're trying to do and, you know, arm our membership base with with the facts and the information and the tools and best practices and, you know, good examples at ad- adaptation planning and get them out there advocating for those things. And so, you know, while, while it's really important for groups to be pushing this issue on every level, that's kind of, that's, that's our niche. Well, Chad, we've been talking for quite a while. I actually have a few more questions that wrap this, yeah. wrap this up relatively soon, but I think everyone wants to kind of know this is why is California such a leader on all things climate change? Do you have some insight to that? That is that is a, a great question. I think there's obviously sort of larger progressive politics in California. I mean, California seems to be bucking a lot of the national trends when it comes to politics, broad, progressive politics broadly, including climate. I think we've benefited from, you know, a Republican and a Democratic governor who have prioritized the issue, Schwarzenegger and now Brown. And so I think that that has really benefited um, the state. And I actually believe that the environmental community in California has had a huge role so that the NGOs that have been pushing these issues in Sacramento and, and elsewhere have, have done a great job. Sorry for the dog barking in the background. <laughs> we got a dog friendly office. <laughs> that sounds about uh, right, but yeah, go on. <laughs> so, uh, so, you know, I, I think those are some of the reasons it's interesting because, you know, I think from a coastal perspective, we're not seeing the impacts that Florida is having, you know, these wildfires in the Pacific Northwest, I think we're a real eye opener, like all of these, you know, weather and individual, you know, disasters don't equal climate change, but we're seeing these trends. So I don't think it's been the personal experience of people. I think it's sort of their, their politics sort of, and, you know, great groups advocating for, for change. A lot of groups, I think, in, are struggling to kind of separate out how they address climate change. You know, there's the mitigation side and carbon emissions and clean energy, and then there's the adaptation side. And yeah, some of them kind of mix the two. And it, when I was out in California, obviously I wasn't throughout the whole state, but it just, it, I was encouraged that it seemed like 
adaptation was really kind of stepping out and coming to its own. San Francisco is doing some really amazing things and people can speak mm-hmm. the language and you're speaking the language and your organization. I mean, just even from how you describe what you want to focus on is ramping things up. And so, yeah, I, I love seeing that separation of the two because sometimes when people say, Oh, we're dealing climate change, we're changing our light bulbs and driving Priuses. It's emissions, yeah. right? I mean, you know, and it's funny because we get asked that all the time too. I mean, we've made a very strategic decision. I probably should have answered this at the front end when you asked us about our strategy. You know, we've, we're not a well equipped to deal with the emissions issues because we're really this relatively small coastal focused organization. So, you know, solar in the desert is something I can't really speak to or, or, you know, the trade-offs between natural gas and other things. So we've really decided, hey, of course we, we understand that we need to reduce emissions and, uh, and, you know, there's human causes to climate change, but we're really going to focus on the impacts of climate change on the coast. And there's so many people in the, in the mitigation side of things too. And, you know, I worked in the state of Florida and they wanted us to kind of do both, but I worked for a state wildlife agency. And so the focus really needed to be on adaptation. That was sort of like the core business that the agency was involved in. Other people are going to do emissions better. And you, you're seeing some conservation groups kind of the, especially with the Paris agreement. It's my understanding the Nature Conservancy is really just kind of decided they want to get into the emissions game, which I just find this odd decision. You know, they have this long history with land protection and adaptation mm-hmm. seems to align with their mission so much. And there's just other groups who are doing the emission side of things. You know what? I mean, not that TNC can't help, but it just it seemed like a weird pivot to like, I mean, the people that I talked to is like, yeah, we're going all in. Our, our state chapters are going to focus in on it. And I think some conservation and environmental groups are struggling with this identity in the, in the climate change era. And, you know, I, I really do hope they recognize what their sort of core missions are. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, and that might be a response to sort of the Trump administration and Pruitt's sort of abandonment of these things. And they're like, okay, we got to weigh in on that, um, which, you know, we all do. But, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, the other thing we, we talk about is, you know, there's a lag time, obviously, between the carbon we pump into the atmosphere and the impacts, the warming impacts. And, you know, the ocean has a ton of inertia. It's big. And, um, you know, so we're going to see we, if we cut all our emissions tomorrow – We've still got a hundred years of sea level rise and impacts that we're going to have to address. So, you know, for us, we're like, these are things that we really need to do. I don't think people appreciate that adaptation is actually a skill set and it's, it's something you have to recruit into your organization. And it's just, yeah, they're conscious decisions on how to, to get better in, in that side of things. So. Absolutely. All right. A couple more questions here. This is, I generally ask folks for some questions to ask my guest on occasion. And, and I got this one that isn't related to adaptation so much, but I said I would do it. And this is related to surfing. And you're a surfer. Do you have any recommendations for great surfing themed books? <laughs> yes, of course. Without question, I think the best surfing book ever written is called the barbarian days it was written by a guy named william finnegan who is a war correspondent and new yorker author so he knows how to write he had one of the most extraordinary global multi-decadal global surf adventures that any surfer could have uh and he won a pulitzer prize for for the book Okay, good one. Any, any others real quickly? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's another one called – there's a uh, an author whose last um, – his first name's escaping me. His last name's – oh, Kem, K-E-M, Nunn. He wrote a book called Tijuana Slews. It's a great fiction piece about surfing. 
Um, and then another really good author is a guy named Daniel Dwayne. He's, he's sort of a New York Times writer, and he wrote a book that I believe is called Caught Inside. Those would be my three recommendations. Okay, sorry to put the spot on that, but I thought it might be a, no, a no, useful it, question it, for some absolutely. people. Absolutely. Um, have you? I mean, you, you got to start with Barbarian Days. Okay, that's <laughs> so good. I, he, I, let's still make sure that he listens to the end. And uh, yeah, have you heard of the the genre of cli-fi? Have you heard of that? No, but I can guess what it is. Right, right. Climate science fiction. I actually had a, a, an art critic on who that's her specialty is like reviewing climate science fiction, oh. um, Amy Brady. And so it just occurred to me that, you know, there's got to be that next great cli-fi surf book out there. Someone needs to write, you know, get some more attention on the issue. So. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, and, you know, Blade Runner 2049 started to dabble in yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, all right. So my last question is a question I ask all my guests. And if you could recommend any future guest and preferably someone that maybe you could help make a connection with, who would you recommend that I talk to? From a coastal adaptation perspective. Or anything. Anything related I mean, yeah. to adaptation. If you adaptation. Have, well, yes. Um, I've got a couple. There's a group of folks down at Scripps who are we're partnered with um they have a surfboard fin called smart fin and they're trying to build a surfboard fin that can measure ocean acidification um in the coastal zone through surfers awesome um trying to turn surfers into citizen science we can understand adapt and mitigate to the impacts of ocean acidification along our coastlines that would be one and i don't know if you interviewed the mayor of miami beach no no uh this he this you know he's a i was on this panel with him this you know about a month ago and i was really fascinated by him because you know he's they're they're doing these you know raising the roads and doing these different things which may or may not be long-term solutions but they're happening he's a pretty amazing dynamic guy and he's doing this in a state that's very politically different to do it. So I, I think he would be a fascinating interview. And you, do you have links to both of them? Yep. I'm happy to introduce you to both. Oh, awesome. Um, <laughs> That, those are great. Those would be great future guests. You know, Randy and I are, are mainly me trying to plot it, any way to get Arnold Schwarzenegger on the podcast. And, uh, <laughs> that's a biggie, but, uh, you know, you have any tell ends? him that, you know, tell him that if he, you know, muscle, muscle beach in Venice, which is where he got to start is going to disappear, um, when it's flooded oh, by sea level rise. And so he's got to get down there and, um, talk about the issue before we lose that iconic spot that started his whole career I've heard him talk on climate change like you said he's been involved as governor and i mean the man can talk about climate change in very in great detail so yeah and, uh, you know one other one that you would be interesting to is gavin newsom oh yeah the climatologist right no he's a lieutenant governor oh, of california I can't think of someone else. Not, maybe there's a scientist one too but um you know he's a um Rising star in uh, California politics. Um, I met him because he was a big advocate of renewable ocean energy, um, which is fascinating. Um, San Francisco has actually a really progressive, I should have talked about it, coastal adaptation plan for their coastline um, that's really good uh, in the city. And, uh, you know, he was former mayor there. Um, and so I think he would have a really interesting perspective kind of from local to state to 
global. No, that'd be awesome. I haven't had a politician on just because sometimes, you know, the, the, it, it is the kind of conversations you, it's, you, you want to dig into. So, but, uh, that would be great to have some from California. <laughs> His, his knowledge on renewable ocean energy was extraordinary. I, I was really impressed. He, he, he understood the, the, the nuances of it in a way that I didn't expect for someone sort of flying at his level of politics. Great. Well, before we wrap yeah. this up, any sort of final message you want to get out there about Surfrider Foundation or anything else? No, I mean, yeah, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I mean, we're a all-volunteer-driven organization, so if if these coastal issues are something you're passionate about and you're, you're part of the world, odds are there's a Surfrider chapter working on them, and we encourage you to get involved. Thanks so much for coming on, Chad. This was a pleasure. I hope I actually get you on again at some future date. I, again, I'm hoping to get out to California next year, and maybe we could come up with a, an on-location theme for a podcast. But uh, again, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. I'd love to do that. There's some great stories uh, to be told up and down the California coast that are so relevant to this topic. So I'd love to do that. Thank you. All right. Great. All right, Adapters. Until next time, this is America Adapts. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap to this episode. Thanks to Dr. Chad Nelson from Surf Rider for coming on the podcast. That was a fun conversation. Chad is such a great guy. You can tell his heart is really in the work that he's doing, and it's such important work. I expect as sea level rise becomes a dominating issue in the years ahead, groups like Surfrider Foundation will be looked to as innovators in the field. Some final housekeeping. Last month, I was invited to present at the Nerd Night at the DC9 Bar. Basically, this group invites science speakers to come on stage and to talk science in front of science-curious millennials. It was a blast. You're on stage, people standing in front of you with drinks in hand, and I got to talk adaptation. It was actually a great challenge to make the topic come alive, but it actually wasn't that hard. I just told stories of previous guests, and they loved it. Thanks to Aaron Huertas for inviting me on. Don't forget to join the Facebook page and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but just search for America Daps and ask to join, and I'll approve you right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on that wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. Also, I love hearing from you, and I mean it. Just say hi. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it's the highlight of my week hearing from you, and sometimes it leads to really cool things. I'm at americaadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, check out the website at americadapts.org. All this information is in my show notes, especially the link to that donate page. It's the end of the year, and I know there are long-time listeners who are just itching to donate. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.